If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We are going to be looking at um, just a few verses this morning. It's, it's uh, interesting, this last Wednesday, I um, taught the last uh, message for the book of Judges, and it was 103 verses. So uh, we have not that many this morning to work through, so I feel good about that. But uh, um, got a lot to look at here. This is, this is a passage where we see front and center the idea of the priority of the spiritual family. And I want to start with a, a saying that I think most of us know, and you'll just finish it when I start this, but you, you've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water, right? We know that saying. That, that is a saying which means that when push comes to shove, if there's an ultimatum presented to me, I'm going to go with my family over anybody else, right? And uh, there is some truth to that in the sense that God loves the family, doesn't he? God uh, has established husband, wife, one man, one woman, and uh, children to come from that blessed union. And uh, he has a lot in his word that instructs us about that family unit. God loves the family. Amen? He loves the family. But it is interesting that he has a family that is more important to him. It is his children who have been united to Christ and been adopted by the shedding of the blood of Christ, by the giving of the Holy Spirit. These are the people of God. These are the children of God, and we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. God has a priority for his family in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This passage is really simply broken up into two sections. The the first section comes to us with this request uh, by the natural family of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus has obviously his natural family, Mary, brothers, so on and so forth. We're going to look at that this morning. And they have a request for him that's actually going to come in the very middle of him doing ministry. So we'll take a look at the text and that'll be something that we, we look at. And then on the heels of that, the Lord is going to reply to this request from his natural family. And what that request is going to amount to is this teaching opportunity in which Jesus speaks about the priority of the spiritual family. That'll be in verses 48 through 50. So Jesus says in this reply that the priorities lie with those who are his spiritual family and the members of that spiritual family prove themselves to be that spiritual family by their actions. That is the doing of the will of God. Okay, that's the direction that we're headed this morning. Let's take a look first at this request that we see from Jesus' family. The text reads, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Note first that this request from Jesus' mother and brothers comes while he is still speaking to the crowds. Uh, this request then shows Jesus in the same context as we encountered him in previously. Jesus was teaching about this evil and adulterous generation of the scribes and the Pharisees who 
demanded a sign from Jesus, but you remember from Pastor Ben's sermon last week how he pointed out that the Lord Jesus had done a whole bunch of signs and miracles before this that ought to have been enough to validate that he was the promised Messiah. But they demanded a sign from Jesus. But you remember that the sign that Jesus told him would be the only sign that they would get would be the sign of Jonah, right? The the text said, this is Jesus speaking, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jesus was saying was that they will get a sign all right, and it will be the sign of his resurrection, which is patterned after the time Jonah spent in the great fish. Effectively, Jesus hitched his own resurrection to the story of an Old Testament prophet. Jesus went on to do some more teaching, and the connection that Matthew wants to make in verse 46 is that this request of his family came in the midst of this teaching. Matthew says that while Jesus was still um, speaking to the crowds, his family comes up to him in the midst of this. Um, This might be like if uh, in the middle of this, my extended family wants to come outside of the doors and demand that I speak to them in the middle of this. Now, I'm not as important as Jesus, just in case you were wondering, uh, but it would be similar to that kind of thing. Jesus, right in the middle of his ministry and teaching, his family comes up to him uh, to interrupt him. Now, did you notice... Uh, that Matthew gives some detail about who in Jesus' family was wanting to talk to him. Uh, He doesn't give a lot of detail like the names of his mother and brothers. It's just kind of generic, right? Mother and brothers. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, you can go down to Matthew 13.55, and the names are given there. Uh, You're going to see in that verse that Jesus' mother is called Mary, and his brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. But here in Matthew 12, the the details of Jesus' family are limited to just his mother and brothers. Another interesting thing is that, did you notice that Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, is not mentioned in the text? Some commentators say that the reason for this is because Joseph has already passed off the scene by this time due to his death. That is possible. And as we look at the Gospels, we see the last mention of Joseph is in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 years old and they were going up to the temple. After that, Joseph is not mentioned by name in the Gospels. It is likely then that Joseph has passed away by this time. At the end of the day, though, we can't be dogmatic about this. I think the perspective of the commentator R.T. France is sensible on this point when he says, it is widely assumed that the mention of Jesus' mother and brothers without a father is evidence that Joseph has died by this time. The tradition fits the evidence and may well be correct, though it cannot be proved. I think that is a good place to land because it is careful to not go beyond what we can prove from the Scripture. And at the end of the day, isn't the Scripture our final authority? 
Now, perhaps more controversial is the issue of Jesus' brothers. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has dogmatized the teaching that Mary was a virgin all of her life. Technical teaching is called the perpetual virginity of Mary. What the Catholic Church bases their doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary on is tradition. They will point to teachings in the early church that assert Mary was an ever-virgin. Some of the church fathers even claim that the brothers of Jesus mentioned in Scripture were not his biological brothers. They were sons that Joseph brought into his marriage with Mary. The Roman Catholic Church will point to these church fathers as evidence for the perpetual virginity of Mary. Some Catholic scholars will also try to explain the perpetual virginity of Mary by suggesting that the word for brothers in the New Testament can be translated as cousins. So they will say that Jesus didn't have brothers, he had cousins, therefore Mary did not have sons. This is a very, very difficult case to make, though, from the Scripture. If the New Testament authors wanted to indicate that these brothers were really cousins, there was a perfectly good word from the Greek they could have used. It's uh, anepsios. In fact, the Greek word is used in Colossians 4.10, where Paul identifies Mark as the cousin, anepsios, of Barnabas. So the New Testament authors had that word at their disposal if indeed they thought these men were cousins and not brothers. But the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus had brothers and the authors of the New Testament use the Greek word for brother here in Matthew 12, 46, Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3, John 2, 12, 7, 3, 5, 10, Acts 1, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, and Galatians 1, 19. That's a pretty good load of evidence, isn't it? Well tested that Jesus had brothers, which means Mary was not a perpetual virgin. In fact, if we read the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew 1, 24 through 25, this is what we read. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but notice this, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, first of all, it is glorious that in the heart of this man, Joseph, was the desire to preserve the virgin birth. He preserved the doctrine of of the virgin birth by keeping his wife a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. But notice very clearly that the implication is Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Why am I addressing this issue? Well, for one, it's relevant to something in our text this morning, but also because it's a good reminder to not let tradition drive our interpretation of Scripture. We don't want to dismiss tradition. It is good to listen to the early church fathers. And on this itch issue of the perpetual virginity of Mary, it's not as if there was a consensus even among the church fathers. If you look at the creeds of the early church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinopolitan Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed, you will not find in those creeds of the early church a mention of the perpetual virginity of Mary. 
which means when the church got together, they did not think that was dogma or doctrine that needed to be put in orthodoxy. At the end of the day, church, the final authority in all things pertaining to faith and practice is not tradition, but it is scripture. Sola scriptura. Well, we can, we can actually move on to something less controversial now. I'm actually kidding. Um, because as soon as we move on from verse 46, we are dealt with an issue in verse 47. What do I mean? Well, if you have the, the ESV in front of you, uh, you are going to notice pretty clearly that you move from verse 46 to verse what? Verse 48. So what's going on here? What's going on here is one of those places that we have a, a textual issue. Uh, what was in the original text of Matthew? Was verse 47 there or was it not? Well, if you're using the ESV, you need to recognize that the translators of that version deem that verse 47 was not a part of the original text of Matthew. They have the reasons for making that decision that are based on good early manuscript evidence. And let me just say as an aside, I greatly respect the translators of the ESV. That's a translation that I normally use. And I think it's a good translation. But I want to humbly submit that I think it's likely that verse 47 should be included in the original text. For one, let me give some reasons here. There are numerous Greek manuscripts that have the verse. For two, verse 48 says that Jesus answered the one who was speaking to him. And verse 47 indicates that someone who was speaking to Jesus. And the third reason that I would give, which doesn't relate to either the manuscript evidence or evidence within the context of Matthew 12, has to do with the consensus of English translations. The overwhelming consensus among English translations that verse 47 was a part of the original text of Matthew. I just listed uh, some here. The New American Standard Bible, Christian Standard Bible, Legacy Standard Bible, King James Version, New King James Version, um, so on and so forth. Quite a bit of representation there in terms of the English translators that thought this verse is a part of the original text. Okay, This is one of those issues, though, I think that when we talk about it, it could shake our faith in the authority of the Word of God, but it need not do that. Um, we're talking about manuscript traditions here. And if you think about this issue in particular, the meaning of the text is not altered whether verse 47 is there or not. Okay? So this is what scholars will call a viable but not a meaningful variant. Uh, what Jesus is communicating here in this passage is not altered by verse 47 being there or not, okay? So I told you guys this was not going to be another controversial issue, but in fact it is. And if you want some more information about this, let me encourage you, there, there is a free resource online called the New English Translation, and they have free study notes, and on this particular issue, there is a note that you can look at that will give you some more details about that. We could have spent a lot longer talking about this issue. I hope that suffices. And uh, feel free to take a look at the New English translation. Okay? Now let's look at verse 47. What does it say? It reads um, that uh, 
someone said to him, this is speaking to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Well, who is this someone? The text actually doesn't say. Matthew just calls him someone. Uh, We also don't know how the information made it to this someone that the members of Jesus' family wanted to talk to him. In the parallel account in Mark, it seems that the family sent this someone into the house to tell Jesus that they were outside. But Matthew, when he gives this account, he's not interested in that detail, but don't miss it. Jesus' family is on the outside, and they are interrupting his ministry because they want to talk to him. So let's see how Jesus replies. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. What is Jesus saying here? In straight talk, Jesus is identifying his disciples as his family. Now, he's not denying that he has a natural family. It's not the point of what he's saying here. The point is that Jesus has a family of disciples that he has gathered around himself since he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And those people are his spiritual family. But not only are they his spiritual family, they, by the sheer fact that Jesus is showing them deference over his natural family, are more important than his natural family. There is a priority to his spiritual family. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We have already seen that the priorities of the kingdom of heaven demand that its followers abandon family relationships if they conflict with the dictates of the kingdom. For example, you remember that we saw a professing disciple of Jesus wanting to bury his father before he truly followed Jesus. In fact, it wasn't his father he cared most about burying, but the inheritance he would receive when he died. And Jesus gave this man an ultimatum and said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Remember that verse. Meaning you've got to prioritize the king and his kingdom over your family ties. In another case, Jesus was teaching his disciples before he sent them out for ministry that when people decide to follow him, they might not find such a welcoming reception by their family when they find out they are followers of Jesus. Jesus said this much in Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You know, we, we sing during this season the song, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, right? But there's only peace on earth if, as the rest of the song says, God and sinners are reconciled. We should expect, actually, in this era in which we live as disciples of Jesus Christ, not so much peace in the world in which we live, especially with those who do not believe the gospel, but according to the words of Jesus, 
He came to bring a sword, and there is even within our own household divisions of relationships. Jesus came to bring a sword that does divide relationships. You can throw another verse in the mix here. It comes from Luke 14, 26. We might say that this verse is even more intense than the others that we've looked at. Remember this one. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, that is, believes in me and follows me, and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Very strong language, but the idea is whenever the dictates of the kingdom, whenever it comes to following Jesus versus a, a family member or people within our family that would want to influence, influence us away from the kingdom, we must always choose the Lord Jesus over family. This is what Jesus calls his disciples to, a commitment to him and his kingdom. And you know, Jesus is not just someone who tells his people to commit to the kingdom, but is just disinterested in the kingdom himself. Uh, Jesus models his own commitment to the kingdom in these verses here in Matthew 12. And just like we re respect earthly leaders who model what they teach, who practice what they preach, we also should respect Jesus for modeling this very point. That's what we are seeing in this very passage. With his family right at the door, he chooses the kingdom over his kin. Now, we may wrongly conclude that since Jesus at this point in verse 49 doesn't include his natural family among his spiritual family, that it will be like that forever. Like, they will never come to faith in Christ. Uh, his natural family will always be on the outside of the kingdom. But there is this beautiful tapestry to recognize from the New Testament itself with respect to Jesus' biological family. If we just do a study on Jesus' brothers, we see this amazing development. At the very first, they are clearly in unbelief. At one point during Jesus' ministry, crowds are coming to him. He's performing miracles. He's gather, gathering his disciples around him. And while Jesus is at home with crowds of people around him, we read this. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Brothers, G Jesus has lost his mind. We need to go get him and go get him some help, is what his brothers are saying. Not exactly a profession of faith, right? Quite the opposite. Matter of fact, it is made explicit in John chapter 7 that his brothers did not believe in him. In that chapter, John speaks about how the Jewish leadership was seeking to kill him. John adds that in addition to this Jewish opposition, there was opposition in his own family for not even his brothers were believing in him. With that word, even, John is showing just how extensive the rejection of Christ was. Members of his own family who, in that day and context, were supposed to support their family members against outside opposition, were even joining in on the rejection of Jesus and his mission. So, yeah, Jesus' brothers were clearly not genuine disciples at this point. 
But after the death of Jesus, his resurrection and ascension, the disciples are gathered together in the upper room to receive the promised Holy Spirit. And we read in Acts chapter 1 that when the disciples entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We see the brothers of our Lord there in the upper room, united with the apostles and devoting themselves to prayer. What changed? They got saved. They got saved. So evidently, not only did they get saved as we read the New Testament, but some of them were prominent figures in the foundational era of the church. James, one of the brothers of Jesus, went on to be a leader in the church that was in Jerusalem and the author of one of our New Testament books, the book of James. Jude, another brother of Jesus, not only came to faith in Christ, but was also one of the authors of the book of the New Testament that we call Jude. So again, evidently Jesus' identification of his disciples as his spiritual family did not ultimately exclude his biological family. They too became his mother and brothers. There was hope for them, and perhaps by application, there's hope for our family members as well. There is still hope as long as there is breath in their lungs, we should believe. Even Jesus' brothers came to believe him. Okay, we still have some proverbial meat on this bone, all right? Uh, and this is, let me just say, if we're using that analogy, this is, this is a meaty meat, all right? Jesus identifies what his spiritual family is known for. This is how you know that someone is in the family of God. Notice this. I'm missing the verse here for you guys to take a look at. That is super sad. I think it just jumped out. I think it, it just leapt out. That's what happened, right? That does happen, right, Ben? So I'm just going to read the scripture to you, okay? So Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let me read that one more time. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I want to state three things related to this verse. One, Jesus does not say whoever believes in me is my brother and sister and mother. He says whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus goes right to the action of a person. He looks at a person's life as the testimony that one is in the spiritual family. Now, it is certainly true that elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that those who have a right to become children of God must receive Jesus. That is, they must repent and believe. In fact, those are the two words that are the response to the message of the gospel. Repent and believe. Repent 
and believe. This is precisely what we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe the gospel. As we look throughout the New Testament, we see that when the gospel is proclaimed, it is repentance and faith. That is the only condition upon which one may enter into the kingdom of, ha- of heaven. It is not their works. It is their repentance and faith. Amen? We are not saved by our works. But in this verse, the focus is not on the root of one's adoption into the family of God, but on the fruit of one who has been adopted into the family of God. And this brings me to the second thing we should say about this verse. Jesus is giving the evidence of one's spiritual relationship to the Father. The evidence of one's relationship to the Father. Note again that Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is, not becomes, my brother and sister and mother. That word is is a very important word. Okay? Jesus, by saying this, is stating a fact about those who are his spiritual family. He is not stating that they become children of God through their obedience to the Father. For us to understand Jesus saying it that way would be to misunderstand him and to lose the very heart of the gospel, which is justification based not on our works, but on the perfect works of Christ. So the focus in Matthew 12.50 then is on the fruit of our salvation, not the root. Third thing to say about Jesus' words here, it has always been true that God's true family is identified by obedience to God, and those outside the family of God are identified by disobedience. It has always been true, Old and New Testament, that God's children are seen to be true children of God by their obedience. Let me show you this background in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 to, to be exact. And you'll notice as we take a look at this verse that it has some connection to even things that we saw in the text from last week. So this is the song of Moses, which Moses writes before he dies. And in the song, he says this to the Israelites, that the Lord is the father and creator of his people. And yet, not all of them enjoy that status of being his children. Matter of fact, most of the Israelites of that wilderness generation died in unbelief. And notice what Moses says about them. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Crooked and perverse generation. You remember that from last week? It's almost as if, and I think this is true, I think Deuteronomy 32 is in in the back, if you will, of Jesus' mind as he is going through Matthew chapter 12. But notice here the the clear thing that what Moses is saying is that there were Israelites in that wilderness generation who were not true children of God. And and the reason that Moses gives for them not being God's children is because, as the text says, their defect, which in the context means they were corrupt in their actions toward the Lord, and they were a perverse and crooked generation, all of which amounts to disobedience. They did not do the will of God and their disobedience proved that they were not true children of God. Now, we might say, man, 
that's just an Old Testament idea, right? Um, but if we turn to the epistles, and in particular, if we look at 1 John chapter 3, we learn the same thing. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is saying that someone who is a true child of God doesn't practice sin. They practice righteousness. They make a habit of doing the will of their heavenly father. On the other hand, those who are not true children of God are the children of the devil. And they prove that identity by their activity. They do not practice righteousness and do not love the family of God. It's really quite that simple. We do live in a day, though, don't we, in which the gospel is so watered down, okay, that all you have to do is just make a profession of your lips or walk an aisle, and therefore you are saved. And it is important for us to remind ourselves about this quite frequently. And did you notice and have you noticed that as we have made our way through the Matthew, this theme of the fruit of one's life being righteousness comes up quite frequently, doesn't it? And, and, and so when we come to it from the text, we just preach what the text says. We are not on a hobby horse. We are not trying to sharpen an ax or anything else like that. We are wanting to preach what God's word says. And God's word clearly states that if a person does not manifest a life of obedience, not perfection, but a life that is characterized by obedience, the word of God gives them zero assurance of faith. Zero assurance of faith. Assurance of faith is for one who has recognized their own sinfulness before a holy God, repented of their sin and trusted in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And that truth, that seed that is in their heart becomes a tree, a production of a life of fruit, a life of obedience, out of joy for what God has done for their lives. It is the fruit of one's life. And if there is no fruit, sadly, there is no root. It is the clear testimony of God's word. The point we see is that Jesus is not being novel and new in Matthew 12, 50. It has always been true that God's true family is identified by obedience to God. And those outside the family of God are identified by disobedience. What is the principle of Matthew 12, 46 through 50? I think to put it simply, it's that the spiritual family is more important than the biological family. Jesus demonstrated this principle, and he wants his people as well to, by their lives, obey the Lord and live out who they are in Christ. And because of that, we should prioritize our spiritual family. Now, before we say some positive things about this, let me start with something this principle does not mean. It does not mean that in prioritizing our spiritual family, we neglect our biological family. Uh, you can look throughout the entirety of the New Testament, and you will see places where fathers are called to lead their families. Uh, you will see places uh, where, in fact, if, if a father does not, or a member, uh, a parent, that is, does not take care of their family, Paul says to Timothy, uh, that person who doesn't care for their own family and provide for their own family it, it has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
very strong language. They're denying they even have a genuine profession of faith if they do not take care and provide for their own family. So we could look at, at, at places and scores of verses in the New Testament that would indicate to us that to follow Christ and to prioritize a spiritual family does not mean we neglect our biological families. But I think on the positive side of things, here's a helpful verse from Galatians 6.10, and I think that Paul must have this verse in mind in Matthew when he says this right here. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You notice the especially there. There is a priority that we are to have toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, we do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of faith. We prioritize our family. Now, uh, this, this might... Um, be a question like, how do I kind of work this out in some of the details of life? If I had to summarize it and think about the teaching of the New Testament, I think we could say that if you're wondering what you should, how do I prioritize the spiritual family? Like, what does that look like in my personal life? First of all, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, but the answer to that, I think, comes in the one another's of the New Testament, okay? We have a lot of these one another's in the New Testament. Serve one another, love one another, pray for one another, admonish one another, a whole bunch of one another. So um, Christians ought to be pretty busy, right? <laughs> On the one hand, we have got a lot to do for one another. But I think if we had to boil down, what does it mean to prioritize the spiritual family? You're asking the question, how can I know that I'm doing that? Just ask yourself the question, do I do the one another's? Do I love the people for whom Jesus died? Do they have my time, talent, and treasure? Because we are the family of God, right, church? If you look around here, here's your family. And these are the people that God wants us to prioritize in this world. And you know, Jesus says something pretty awesome when he says, they will know, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. One of your greatest testimonies is the love that you have for each other. The onlooking world sees the way you treat one another, and they know that you follow Jesus. That's how it ought to be. Church, let's be faithful as a body to prioritize the spiritual family that the Lord has placed us in because we're going to be with each other for all of eternity.